You're listening to The Resilient Researcher, hosted by Dalen Culver and Megan Douglas, co-founders of Bidu. The Resilient Researcher is a podcast dedicated to the well-being of social science researchers who routinely find themselves navigating complex settings and sensitive subject matter. We want to bring you authentic conversations with peers and thought leaders, sharing practical insights around the mental health challenges of fieldwork. Together, we are finding our way towards a more ethical, sustainable, and resilient research practice. Hello, everyone. Megan here with Dalen. Yes, so we are doing another podcast mini uh, drawing from a recent workshop that we had the pleasure of doing with the Scottish Graduate School of Social Sciences, SGSSS, uh, as part of their uh, sort of student-led training series. Uh, So we had a really great group of participants, uh, most of whom I believe were sort of at the PhD level, uh, all from higher education institutions across Scotland. Um, and we covered the, the topic of rapport, how to build rapport. And this is, a, a topic that I think it's, it's interesting to a lot of people. It's obviously very, very practical, but I really like this workshop because it went a bit into sort of the theory behind it and at times sort of problematized it in perhaps a depth that, um, that, you know, researchers may not have done so previously kind of in the classroom or in the field. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a really good one. So, so for this podcast, this is going to be a bit different. It's just going to be about 20 minutes. This is a big topic, of course, but we're really just going to sort of cover some of the salient topics that, that we discussed, um, some of the discussions that came forth and, and feedback from the participants. Um, yeah. So so let's get to it. Yeah, Megan, um, can you give us an overview? How is rapport defined in the literature? Obviously, it's something that not just researchers do, but all kinds of professionals do, whether you're a social worker or even in customer service. Like Building rapport is such a general topic, but how did we define it in our workshop? Yeah, I think one of the reasons why it is uh, so hard to define is because there's no single definition. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of described very differently depending on who you ask within, within the literature. And yet we use the term a lot and not just within academia, of course, outside of academia. But one of the, one of the definitions that we quite liked was by uh, King and Horrocks. Uh, we will put the, the references in the description for this podcast. Um, but they said rapport is about trust uh, enabling the participant to to feel comfortable in opening up to you. Uh, so that's that's one definition. Yeah, we also kind of went on to interrogate the concept of trust and of empathy and the ethics behind that. Like, to what extent might your research participant want to trust you? And in some cases... There are built-in asymmetries and hierarchies that simply cannot be overcome. Um, can you give us maybe an example, Megan? Yeah. Um, so we drew a bit on the work of Heinzmann um, et al. And, and looking at sort of these power asymmetries. And um, yeah, this, this was interesting to me because I, I don't think I had ever really interrogated kind of the, the issue of rapport, even kind of 
all through my PhD. I mean, I'm done my PhD now. I really wish I had sort of consulted these, these resources before to think a little bit more critically about rapport. It's this idea, and now, so this is this is this these authors' kind of perspective, but that rapport is a project that is typically undertaken by what they they call a status superior. So this idea that like you know we don't talk about having good rapport, for example, between siblings or between a parent and and, and a child, but typically we think of it in terms as like of like more clear cut hierarchies. So like employer, employee, teacher, student, researcher, participant. So it's sort of a reminder to all of us as researchers that there are potentially inherent asymmetries. I wonder if using a different term would almost be more equitable in that sense. Like in, you know, the compassion work that I do, we talk a lot about common humanity as like a basic principle, which I think recognizing someone's common humanity feels much more on equal footing than the idea of building rapport. Cause as you said, and, and I, I do agree with Heinzman and, and their colleagues is don't build rapport with just anyone. It's the person who t- undertakes the project of building rapport is inherently in a position of power because they're the one doing it. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. I suppose it kind of come back, comes back to how you are defining rapport. So if you're defining it as a trust-building exercise or kind of continual process, um, then that sort of, I suppose, foregrounds the need for trust to be built without doing away with the presence of power asymmetries, I suppose. I, I mean, because I don't, I don't actually think it's possible to completely get rid of power asymmetries. I think those will always exist. And, and, you know, within the social sciences, you know, we, we typically acknowledge that. And it's about not being blind to bias and, and to power, power hierarchies, but actually naming them, calling them out and interrogating their impact on our data collection and analysis. Um, but, but it is a good reminder that, like, just by building and having rapport does not erase yeah, absolutely. And I think the that definition that we're using, rapport as a way of building trust, I think also needs to be interrogated because building trust implies that there's a certain level of vulnerability that needs to be demonstrated. Um, but it's like on whose part? On the research participant's part? You don't necessarily ask that the researcher disclose vulnerable things or demonstrate vulnerability. Um, So it's kind of like a weird asymmetrical version of trust. But there was there was a really interesting uh, question that we kind of posed to our participants in the workshop that um, maybe we can touch back to here, which was who benefits from rapport building? Is it the researcher or is it the research participant? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's one of those questions that doesn't have like a clear uh, cut response. I think ideally you would say both, but I think just because both parties benefit does not mean that the quality of the of the benefit is the same, right? Or or the nature of it. Yeah, I mean, like the researcher is getting a PhD out of it. You know, in some cases, what is the participant getting? Um, it's 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 hard to sort of qualify or quantify, isn't it? And that's that's one of the reasons why it's so tricky. But 
I did like how kind of within this this wider within this conversation we touched upon this idea of the ethics of empathy as you know empathy as a tool to build rapport and to sort of maybe in an effort to break down some of those asymmetries of power um, to demonstrate empathy you know this idea it's like I know how you feel let me exhibit that and we went into sort of verbal and nonverbal ways of demonstrating empathy um, but looking a bit more critically at that and is that manipulation is is there a coercive nature to that um, because different mm. levels of risk right like potentially very, very serious risks for the participant. You know, if they're disclosing things because they feel safe. I do think the ethics of empathy conversation was really interesting and also echoed some of the conversations we've had in the past about the distinctions between empathy and compassion and um, the idea of stepping into someone else's shoes and can you ever really step into someone else's shoes and... Um, we then kind of proposed a more ethical and compassionate way of building rapport uh, that kind of was meant to get away from some of the historical issues with the rapport building process as it tends to be quite hierarchical, masculine, non-reciprocal. That was at least the assertion of Oakley. Um, we'll pop that citation in the show notes as well. What was our, what was our kind of approach that we proposed, Megan? Yeah, well, we talked about trauma-informed frameworks and, and compassion-based frameworks and and how these can be incorporated into the report building process. Um, so we've done workshops in the past, which is all about, you know, like this is really sort of, um, one of Dalen's kind of areas of expertise, um, you know, how to, how to incorporate compassionate methodologies into into the into the qualitative interview in research, um, and and really, I mean, I think we did use the terminology of rapport, but that's certainly, I think, one of the sort of um, intended outcomes is to build trust, but a trust that is that is aiming for or. Um, yeah, I suppose has the intent of, of sort of minimizing some of those. Yeah, the way that I see it is we were trying to get away from data collection as this inherently extractive process, because it is at the end of the day, you go in with your questions and you have to get a certain amount of data in order to satisfy the requirements of your degree. And that kind of extraction, I think, intentionally or unintentionally leads to um, this kind of problematic version of rapport that, that can be coercive. Um, so our, our proposition was foregrounding the human first and foremost through trauma sensitivity. So recognizing the ubiquity of trauma and how it impacts the brain, how it impacts someone's ability to earn a livelihood and flourish and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we also talked about the neuroscience. So um, strategies for co-regulation. We have these little mirror neurons kind of buzzing around our brains all the time. They're the little messengers that 
pass messages from neuron to neuron and from different parts of our brain rather. And our mirror neurons fire when we observe someone else feeling a certain way, they fire in our brain as if we were feeling the same thing. So um, it's actually a really cool, there's a really cool podcast episode that I'll tag in the show notes as well on mirror neurons if you want to find out more because people are saying it's this discovery is doing for psychology what DNA did for biology. Um, The existence of mirror neurons and our growing knowledge about them is really changing the way we understand each other and how we interact. And we know that we are able to self-regulate to manage our own thoughts and feelings and behaviors um, through various physiological, physical techniques, but we can also co-regulate. So my nervous system has a direct impact on the person sitting in front of me. If I am calm and cool and collected, it is much more likely that the person sitting in front of me is going to be calm and cool and collected and feel safe. Whereas if I'm reactive and upset and my face is red and I'm gesturing all over the place, the person in front of me is going to mirror that, right? It seems intuitive, but there's so much science behind it now. And um, we kind of talked about that in terms of verbal and nonverbal. Yeah. So it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? Because it's, it's being able to read um, their cues. We talked about the linguistic or the verbal and the paralinguistic, so like the body language um, uh, you know, are they leaning in and are they laughing? Are they frowning? How's their eye contact? So sort of reading those cues and adjusting accordingly, but then also being mindful of our own cues and how they're being read. And, and I really, I liked in this workshop because we did apply this to the virtual research context as well. So what if you're doing online interviews, for example, what are the implications? Uh, you know, if they have no video on, well, what does that mean for, you know, what does the inability to read body cues mean for the report building process? Yeah, I mean, it makes it so difficult. Like there was a there was a study that um, found like in terms of the the oxytocin release that we get when we feel like we're connecting with another human being in person, you know, we release X amount on the phone. It's maybe like half of that over FaceTime. You still get a decent amount. A text message doesn't even register. Your body doesn't even register it as a physical or a a human connection. Um, So I think that just goes to show how, yeah, how hard it can be if you're doing virtual research to really uh, build that trust if that's what your rapport building process is aiming towards. For sure. Some advantages, though. Uh, We we talked a bit about how there are some studies that show that... um, some participants, particularly if the research topic is quite sensitive, may actually feel a greater sense of safety if they're within their, their, own, in their own room. There's sort of the digital, you know, kind of separation. Um, and then also, you know, we talked about sort of all things in moderation. So how studies show that, you know, in-person eye contact is huge for building rapport, but too much eye contact can actually be counterproductive and come across as aggressive. And then, of course, you've got the cultural sort of dimension. Yeah, all of this, like, all of these 
<laughs> like pieces of advice and things to consider can feel quite paralyzing. Like, oh, okay, I want to make eye contact, but not too much eye contact. Oh, how's my breathing? Oh, how's their breathing? Oh, God. And then all of a sudden you realize you're not even paying attention to what they're saying. Like, how do you, I think we did end with like a kind of piece on at the end of the day, we're all going to make mistakes and no one can do it right. I guess this is the self-compassion piece coming in again. It's like, we're all going to goof it up here and there. And at the end of the day, the most compassionate and um, kind and authentic thing you can do is be yourself and just show up and trust that you know this stuff and that you're doing your best. 100%. And, you know, and this goes back to sort of the the compassionate, the trauma-informed framing of our research. How how are we viewing the people that we do our research with? Are we viewing them as subjects or as participants, as collaborators? Are we striving to enable a greater sense of, of agency and empowerment and recognizing autonomy? You know, that's... Yeah, perhaps there's no, like, you know, none of us are perfect. But if those are values that we're striving for, that's huge. That's huge. And and it has really important implications for our research and, and just for our interactions with other human beings. You know, and these things, like, gosh, I never learned any of this in the classroom, honestly. But, you know, it's sort of like trial and error, I guess, which is unfortunate that you have to learn things the hard way. Um, but... Like all things, you know, it takes practice and uh, yeah, the more that we can learn about ourselves and kind of how we're coming across, perhaps, you know, maybe it means asking friends, family, people who are going to be honest with us. We did do some sort of mock interviews uh, at the end of the workshop, which I really quite enjoyed. Um, so it's both, you know, the, 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 the practice of listening, listening to hear and understand, not listening to respond and the power of the pause, um, but then also kind of looking for and reading those cues, those verbal, those nonverbal cues, and being mindful of how you yourself are coming across to the person you're speaking with. Yeah, I think it's so important to be having these kinds of conversations, because as you said, this was not part of my any class that I took during my master's or any kind of training curriculum I think having these conversations and raising the issues and then just really practicing being present, which is why we try to include mindfulness exercises in most of our workshops, because, you know, you can do all the work and your brain is going to absorb what it's going to absorb. But I find that I am at my best as a researcher and as a human, when I can really just relax into the moment and see the person in front of me as another human being, nothing more, nothing less, like, you know, someone who I'm interested in getting to know, having that like genuine curiosity about this person and what life is like for them. And I think getting, there's a risk here of, I think, getting too bogged down and like, do this, don't do that. Um, And Yes, having these conversations is so important, but um, the mock interview exercise at the end is a great one. I always like that because it gives people a chance to put it into practice, which you never get to do. We don't do any mock interviews uh, during like a postgraduate degree in the UK, at least, um, that I'm aware of. It's 
trial and error. As you said, you're just kind of thrown in into the flames. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh, no, it's so true. Uh, I, I think, honestly, my very first interviews were like were in the field, the quote unquote field. Um, and gosh, I I experimented. It's pretty cringy to think. But I mean, I went everything from kind of the stone faced aiming for, you know, <laughs> the objective removed researcher, you know, uh, pen in hand, all, all business uh, to crying, you know, tears streaming down my face. The full um, spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think either of those were the right answer. But, you know, you do get into a rhythm. And, you know, and you, you sort of touched upon this earlier is I think there's something so powerful in authenticity. And, and we all know inauthenticity when we see it. You know, like we can all think about interactions that we've had where maybe we've been asked questions and, you know, I don't, I don't think, in I don't think, you know, by not being your true self, that doesn't build trust. Um, that's not good for the rapport. Uh, that being said, there's always things that we can learn and do better. But, um, but yeah, you're right. This isn't something that should paralyze people. Good things to learn, good things to think about. And rapport is a complicated topic that means different things to different people. And it's going to look different in each interview and with each participant. Like, I think it's so, so individual, but this was a really fun workshop. Um, I had a really great time facilitating and researching ahead of time and chatting with our participants. So looking back, what was your favorite part, Megan? I liked the, uh, the mock interviews. I had the, the, the pleasure of being able to join one. Um, and uh, that, that's always fun. It's always fun to put into practice kind of the, you know, you do the theory and then you get to put it into practice and, and then getting to hear the participants talk about kind of their experiences and things that surprise them, things they hadn't thought of before. Um, what about yourself? I got a good laugh out of the end when we introduced a few kind of stereotypical, quote unquote, difficult participants. So like the the boundary crosser, someone who right. who pushes things a little too far, wants to know so much about you and, you know, maybe gets a little handsy. Sadly, that happens. Um, <laughs> the venter. <laughs> the venter, someone who just like blasts you with information the hostile participant, the reticent participant, someone who's really in their shell and just does not really want to share. So we kind of went through those tropes and everybody was like, oh yeah, I've had someone like that or I've had someone like that. And we got to kind of workshop, like, what did you, what did you do? And um, sometimes the answer is there's not much you can do. <laughs> um, and that's okay too. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay don't don't beat yourself up about it um you know and 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 yeah it did take a serious note because we did talk about how sometimes you know it's just it's not just a matter of them being you know they don't want to talk or they're on their phone the whole time you do see that but if if you ever are felt that if you ever do feel in danger or uh, or deeply uncomfortable the importance of, of getting out of that situation and this is, these are things that we've touched upon in the past. Yeah. No interview is worth putting yourself at risk. 
hundred percent, hundred percent. So, you know, I think the more that we can talk about these, they're extremes, obviously. These are all personas. They're meant to be extreme. Um, very rarely, at least in my experience, you have participants who kind of fully embody, you know, one of these extremes. But the more preparation, the more kind of you can think about the possibility of these different personalities in research participants before you actually start interviewing the better. Um, you know, you're just, you're just more ready for it. You're not caught off guard. And uh, again, things, things you don't learn in class, things you kind of unfortunately have to learn the hard way and then sometimes beat yourself up about, you know, I should have done a better job. It's my fault. There wasn't rapport. And like, we can't, yeah, I think there's a dangerous potential for quantifying rapport in some way. Like you either have it or you don't, or you had it at the level five with this person, but then it was only a level two with the other person. And what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? And it's like, you're never going to get along with everybody. And um, my therapist actually has this saying that she brings up all the time that I love, which is like, you can't be everybody's favorite flavor of ice cream. She's like, some people just absolutely hate pistachio and some people absolutely love pistachio and if you're going to be pistachio you have to get used to that and I actually love that analogy I come back to it all the time I'm like I'm a pistachio it's okay (laughs) who hates pistachio some people really I mean it is green I think some people are freaked out by that I'm, I'm missing the point here no I get it I get it no that's I I love that wise words I like that. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, Yeah. You will not be able to build rapport. You know, certainly if we think about sort of a spectrum, let's say you'll not be able to build great rapport with every single person that you interact with as a researcher. And that's okay. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Self-compassion. Absolutely. Well, it was a great workshop and glad we could share with you guys a little bit of the insight that we got, we drew from it and um, do get in touch if this is a topic that interests you, uh, if it's something that you and your colleagues might be interested in, happy to have a chat. And that's my dog barking. So I think it's time there's, to there's our cue. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Resilient Researcher. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague to keep the conversation going. You can also write us a review and or subscribe to stay on top of new episodes. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. If there's a topic you'd like to explore or if you or someone you know would like to come on as a guest, drop us an email at hello at gowithbedoo.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you soon. Thank you.